Welcome to Spin It, a business podcast that takes you into the lives of some of today's most influential leaders, entrepreneurs, game changers, athletes, and many more. On Spin It, we take a deep dive into the lives and journeys of our guests to deliver real, unfiltered, and unscripted conversations that will surely inspire hope and promote change. We focus not on their current success, but on the obstacles and challenges that they faced along the way that often doesn't get talked about. How they battled adversity, getting up and being knocked down when all of the odds were stacked against them. Today, we're talking with the nicest man I've ever met, Jonathan Bowman Perks. He is a talented leadership coach to hundreds of chairmen, CEOs, and executive boards around the globe. He also hosts the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. Jonathan started to sharpen his leadership skills when he joined the British Army as a young man. Even after facing challenges in life like dyslexia and a cancer scare, Jonathan chooses to see the positive in all things. He talks to us today about servant leadership, the dangers of comparison, and how failures ultimately lead to success. Stay tuned to learn how you can improve your own leadership skills from one of the best leaders on the globe. Hello, Jonathan, and welcome to the show. I am so excited to do this interview with you today. Hey, I, I am really fired up. And uh, the initial contact we had, it just was so energizing. I think this is going to be one of the best podcasts I've ever been on. So I'm really excited. Thank you. Oh, gosh, no pressure with that, huh? Well, you're in the top 1% of podcasts in the world. Wow. We should look into those metrics, Jonathan. We should. We should. Let's get better, even better. Absolutely. So I want to first chat with you about how everything started. So I want to talk to you about your childhood. I want to talk to you about what it was like growing up in your household and your relationship with your parents. Wow, how it all began. So yeah, I think if I, uh, my parents were a huge influence on me. And in fact, the whole work I do on inspiring leadership is stimulated by my late father and by my late mother. I think my earliest recollections is hiding behind the skirts of my mother in the caravan we lived in because we couldn't afford a house. And there was a knock on the door and there was a smartly dressed naval officer with full dress uniform. And where is it? Here we go. This is my father's cap. And it actually fits. You know, there's that old expression, when a cap fits, wear it. And there yeah. was an officer wearing that hat at the door of my mother's caravan. And he said, Mrs. Perks, I'm really sorry to tell you, but your husband's been killed. And from that day, our lives changed. We were no longer guests of the Royal Navy. We no longer had a future. My father was 33, my mother was 34, and everything changed. And so mother brought three boys up on her own, nine, seven, and I was two and a half. And so life was quite difficult. There wasn't much money, but various people helped us out. I had a lucky help from an uncle, Uncle Hector, who had a false leg, which I found in a cupboard one day when I was rummaging around his house. I thought, my God, he's a cannibal. He eats people. There's a leg in the cupboard. But it was Uncle Hector's spare leg, which was a story oh, in itself. Because <laughs> traumatic. I'm like, that's traumatic for a little I one. Know. They, 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 well, they treated him <laughs> with mercury in those days, mercury ointment, which they didn't realize would make blood vessels brittle. And of course, they had to have his legs amputated, poor chap. Anyway, that was Uncle Hector, who was so generous, had no children, helped my mother, got us to boarding school, which actually was my big start in life. Because I was told by my teacher when I was uh, quite small that I was thick and I was going to be a dustman because I couldn't spell. I couldn't do my English. Actually, it turned out I, I just I was just dyslexic, but she didn't know that. No tests in those days when I was right, a, young, right. a young lad. But yeah, um, father's father's memory and the impact he had was profound because I decided not to go to the navy like my father. He was a fast jet pilot and and was destined to be an admiral. They all said he was one of the best of his generation. 
But when I was an instructor at Sandhurst, at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, I wanted to know more about the father I'd never known. And I, I also hit a crisis point, Stephanie, where I, um, I thought I was God's gift. And I was an instructor at Top Gun School. I was at Santos. I was so cool. And I got an average report. Like, what do you mean average? I've never been average. I've always been outstanding. Was I not outstanding? No, you're average. There are other officers who are better. And it's quite nice. I'm going to the reunion this Christmas with all those people where I was an instructor. And others have gone on to be, you know, four-star generals and, and, and great things. Uh, some didn't, but I clearly wasn't good enough to be that. And I had a crisis. So I, I reached out to people who might help me be a better leader. And I thought, who knew my father? So I wrote letters to the, to the Fleet Arum Officers Association all around the world. Got lovely letters from about 20 of them. And they said, your father was a hero. And he did this and this and this. And so I got them all together. Just to end this story, because I don't want to talk too long. But I got them all together and we had a lovely lunch. And one of them said, Jonathan, your father bought my ticket. I said, what do you mean, bought your ticket? He said, he died in my airplane. He was test flying my airplane to make it safe for me. And it killed him rather than me because the engine had a fault. A bit of the blade of the turbine split off, went through the fuselage, set a fire. And your father's last words were, I'm bringing it in to test it out because we've got to sort this problem out. And the other guy was Bill White, who was sitting to my left. And Bill said, I was your father's observer, navigator. He banged me out of the aircraft, saved my life too. But like in Top Gun with Goose, do you remember Goose in Top Gun? Where he I do, killed? I That's do, That's what yes. happened to my dad because they misfired and sent him into the tailpiece and killed him. So my father is the real motivation why I look for inspiring leaders. And it was Bill White who said, Jonathan, you have a choice. You can be a victim, poor me, I've got no daddy. Or you can make your father your inspiration and find men and women who are inspiring, like you, learn from them and pass it on to other people. So that's why I do what I do. Jonathan, when you sent those letters to those people, tell me some of the questions that you asked in the letters. Yeah, I said like, can you remember anything about my father? What was he like? Any stories that I could help understand what it's like to be uh, an inspiring leader. And their stories were hilarious and funny, but very poignant, you know, that how he had influenced their lives for all their life, just by helping them grow and learn and get over mistakes and things like that. And one of them said, uh, you know, your father's funeral could be more hilarious in typical military black humor. He said, we all followed the, <laughs> the cortege into the Chinese cemetery and we had to reverse out. And then as we reversed out, we met the truck with the wreckage of his aircraft, which joined the cortege so on its way to the port. Like, oh no, not with the wreckage of his aircraft at his funeral. Oh, God. So, yeah, uh, so really profound things. Lovely people all over the world, just really caring. That's amazing. So I want to chat about the dyslexia really quick, because as you said, you said back in those times there wasn't testing around it. There probably wasn't a very much, there probably wasn't even very much awareness around it. Dyslexia and learning differences hold a very special part of my heart. My oldest daughter has five learning disorders, but dyslexia was one of them and, and was the one that really was almost the gateway to the others. So she had dyslexia, how we found out was the note taking, kind of going from the board down, going from the board down and writing. And it reeked havoc. I can't tell you how many times she ended up in the office or how many teachers were frustrated with her. And this is just, you know, this is 20 years ago. This isn't maybe 40 years ago. Okay. The amount of brain power and fortitude it took for her to get through school and actually retain and maintain the information for testing was excruciating. Every day of high school, she was in tears. 
What was growing up with dyslexia like for you? And what were some of the things that you did to maybe push through those? Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's, uh, firstly, I'm sorry for your daughter, because it, it does have a profound impact on us, particularly if it's not, it's not diagnosed. So my stepdaughter, for example, is quite profoundly deaf, but we only realized when people put masks on. And she was age 26 because she couldn't lip read anymore. Wow. She'd found a way of getting around it. And she's fine now. And I don't think she's being ignorant and ignoring her stepdad. I just go, hi, I'm here. I turn around to see it. And she goes, hey, how are you? And we get, we get on so well, it's so easy now. But before it was, you know, couldn't, I couldn't understand what was wrong with her. Was it just being right. rude? Of course she wasn't. She's actually, she's actually totally You're like, charming. you need to take my leadership program right yeah, that's now. Right, that's right, yeah. A bit more emotional intelligence needed. And of course it wasn't that. It was, I didn't know what she was going through. And they didn't know what I was going through. So, yeah, I was made at the age of seven to feel I was thick. And yeah. until I was probably really in, into my 40s, where people go, Jonathan, you're really clever. I go, no, 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 I'm not. I, I'm thick. And literally, that was my label. I am thick. Yeah. And so I think I didn't go for so many things I could have gone for. However, I've got to give it to my mum, Trisha. Sadly, dead some years ago with a, a stroke, uh, which was very disabling to her. I'm so sorry. Uh, and then eventually she, she passed away. But she said, no, you're not thick. We're going to find, if you can't do your spelling, which I was awful at spelling, really bad, and you can't do your maths. So I did pure and applied maths, and I'm a visiting professor at a business school, but I'm trying to prove that teacher that she's wrong. I think she's been dead many years, but I'm still trying to prove she's wrong and gather yes. badges on my scout arm. So I think what it did was my mother said, we'll find a way for you. Everybody's got intelligences and they're different and yours mm -hmm. will be with people. So that and the fact that she thought I was going to be a general, she was always determined I was going to be a general in the army when I was started off in the army and things like when I yawned at table. Jonathan, generals don't yawn. Oh, mother, yes, okay, really. You know, so, but it was always a little bit of a, a teasing me to get me to raise my standards, but I certainly did. But I think she believing in me, somebody believed in me, someone's got to believe in you and let you realize that it's not the end of the road. But I can remember months, years of extra work I would have to do. You know, talk about this 10,000 hours of purposeful yeah. practice before you're really good at saying, I would be down, I remember I was at Welbeck College, my sixth form place, and it was an old country house with basements and cellars. And I'd be in the cellars on my own in some study room with a little light on, reading through these books again and again and again, trying to understand it. I learned about mind mapping. So mm -hmm. I'm very visual. So I'm auditory and I'm visual. So I've got, I've got my, I just did a coaching session and I took the notes, mind map, drew them all out and I just send it off to my client. So that's the way I do it. I'm dyslexic, so I've done two books. I'm doing another book, but I dictate my book. I dictate most of my emails. And so your daughter, I'm sure, can do the same. And when they found things like Dragon Naturally Speaking, and now everybody's got voice activated, it's the normal way. But in the early days, there never was anything. So right. I think early on, I started listening to tapes. I listened to a tape of my father. Hello, darling, this is Paul here. I'm just in Singapore, darling. I'm having wizard fun. I mean, his lovely, deep, sonorous voice. You know, it was just like listening to Prince Philip. It was fabulous. But so I listened to things. That was my way of doing it. But yeah, for ages, I was convinced. And I just have to work twice as hard as everybody else. So I think it, it gave me a bloody determination that I was going to do it. And also... Just finally, alongside the dyslexia, I wasn't very sporty. Perhaps it was the coordination. I'm not, I'm not sure. Maybe something else I saw, but I hadn't really measured. It's only I did the measurement. I'm 60 now, probably about five years ago. 
But um, I wasn't in the rugby team or the cricket team or the football team. I was always the one standing on the touchline and no one would choose me and I like this. And, and okay, we'll have you. Come on in our team, last one. And so I then, if the football teams were, or the rugby teams were playing, the ones who were the, like the useless ones would get sent for a run, go running down to the river and come back. And I suddenly found, I kept overtaking people. And I thought, oh, they're behind me now. And I'll, I'll chase the next one and I'll catch him and I'll chase the next one and catch him. And then I was at the front and I thought, hey, I like this, this is, this is running. And of course, now I hold the world record for the Cyprus double mountain marathon, which hasn't been beaten. But that only came from being the loser running along the playing fields because you weren't in the cool team with the gladiators. So you said so many things here that bring me back to, which we'll talk about later in the interview, is your leadership style. And I know this is one of the things I got wrong for so long. For so long to be a leader for me when I was in my 20s was to stand on a stage and have everybody pay attention to you and do what you say. That's when you've made it. That's when you're a great leader. And through many, many, many courses of having amazing mentors, I really understood leadership is not what you do like it's not a dictatorship, it's a leadership is actually making people believe in themselves and inspiring them to greatness. And I think your first set of that was with your mom. Mm. I think she believed in you and she is the one that knew what a great leader that you could be. So I think that's pretty incredible to hold on to with those two parents that you had that were awesome. You're so right, Stephanie. And there's that lovely story about expectation theory. And my mother expected that I would do well. She believed in me. And then I, the scouts, I was in the scouts and someone believed in me at, I don't know, 15 or something. Or she sent me, she said, look, we, you haven't got a father figure. So she sent me away to boarding school, which was okay. Luckily not in my boarding house, but another boarding house, there was a pedophile who was abusing some of the boys. Uh, and we sort of heard about it and there was uh, comments were made, but nothing was really said. Luckily I wasn't abused, but some of the other boys were. So you've got to be very careful in that environment. You mm -hmm. trust them to somebody else. The duty of care is by somebody else. And this was abused and they were abused, but luckily I wasn't. But going away was quite hard early age. I think I've forgotten how old I was. Maybe I was five or something. I was really tiny, but I did meet one or two figures who inspired me. And I've always been looking for a father figure. So when I was assistant to the head of the army, Field Marshal, the Lord Inge, I, I looked to him to be a father figure to me. As it was, he was a bit more of a fierce, unforgiving character and so not really wanting to take on that kind of role but the person who did was general the lord dannett who was my commanding officer when i was a, a major and he's a great inspiration to me a really inspiring leader one of the best the best and in fact where's his book i'm going to reach for it i can't I thought you were going to get me his hat too. I was like, do you just collect hats? <laughs> this, this is it, Richard Danner, you know, wow. leading from the front. And he was the head of the British Army and, and a great inspiration to me, amazing stories that he had. So I found the leadership from certain people. And I think overcoming hardship was what did it. But it's interesting you made a point about getting it wrong. I got it wrong. I remember part of the thing when I was at Sandhurst. I thought that I took the cue from the six foot four, I'm mm -hmm. five foot 11, Coldstream Guards non-commissioned officer who was really fierce and knew a lot about the infantry and stuff. And so I let him have his way, which was quite a bullying, unforgiving. Mm -hmm. If they failed, just sack them, get them out. They won't make it officers, get them out. You know? And so my platoon shrunk down. So actually I'm somewhat ashamed to go back and see my platoon in December, some 30 years later, because I think I could have been a far better leader. Whereas Lewis Bryan, who was a great inspiration to me, parachute regiment, 
Lewis tragically was killed in a motorbike crash. I was the last person to see him. And I said, Lewis, you're going to the funeral of your cousin in Newcastle. Take it easy on that big motorbike you've got. Don't do anything stupid. In Windsor Great Park, he was racing with another bike, came around the corner, slid on the oil, went into the threshing blades of a tractor that it was dragging, was completely destroyed. And his funeral was the most grim thing I've ever been to. Full military ceremonial funeral with a band, the whole lot. And his fiancée was there. It was just tragic. But he inspired me about caring about you guys. He'd make jokes, okay, everybody up the trees. And, and they're in the forest. They've all got to get up a tree as high as they could. He'd do it with them, you know. He'd mm -hmm. laugh with them. They'd love him. They'd willingly die for him if need be in battle. And not many people ask you to do that in your job. Thank God. No, I, I really think, I just mentioned one thing I got wrong. I got so many things wrong along the way. And I'm, I really am at the point in my life where I can say I'm thankful for that. But I, I do have the same for me, it's regret or shame on what I could have done so much better to to mo motivate people and to to get them to their next greatest thing, to mm. their next greatest thing. I kept going, oh my gosh, you're climbing this ladder. Stephanie, you're 26 years old and you're a director of a publicly traded global company. Yeah, nobody mentioned it was because of attrition because three other people before me had lost their jobs and I was the only dummy who would do it. <laughs> you know, but you don't learn these things until along the way, but you have to be with your team. And I think that's something that we'll talk about shortly is being with them to guide them through and it's so important that that's leading and that's not managing yeah you're spot on and there's such a difference between managing and leading there's lots of managers out there there's few leaders but actually leading is about the other it's not about yeah. you you've got to be so good a leader that you're invisible because you're listening and you're asking great questions but so yes. good a leader that you're really in the room and when you're in the room you don't just say very much, but it's all about them. It's not about you. It took me years to learn that. I thought, look at me, it's about me. Exactly. It's not about you. It's about you being no. really caring about the people you lead. So you aspire to inspire them, to give their best, to be their best. And, and Jonathan, I'm so glad that you said that because I remember the day. I remember the day that you prep for these meetings, whether it's VCs or boards or or a company that you're with that's getting ready to IPO, whatever it is. Okay, you prep for these meetings. And I remember the day that I walked into a meeting with people. First of all, I believe I was the only woman in the room. I know for sure I was the youngest and I know for sure I was the least educated. Okay. And I remember, I should say book educated. I was the least educated around where they had gone to school. And I remember the very day that it hit me and the very meeting that I was in where I, I didn't feel compelled that I had to say something so people would notice that I was in the room. I stayed silent the entire two and a half hour meeting. But what I did was I paid attention to body language. I paid attention to emotional intelligence. I paid attention to all the things that were not being said. And I paid attention to mostly the hurt or the uncertainty or the frustration of others. And I silently made a plan to impact. Yeah. And that was the very first time that I had never said anything and everybody going, hey, are you okay? Mm -hmm. Hey, are you okay? And I took that as a silent, for me, I was like, gosh, have I been talking too much? Have I been stating my ideas too much? Have I been talking over people too much? And I really took that as a giant learning experience to take a step back and experience what other people are going through. Because once you can actually inspire them and make them believe in themselves, that's when you become a great leader. Fantastic. And I want to just support everything you said there, Stephanie. People forget what you say, they forget what you do, but they never forget how you make them feel. And two great skills that 
I have to keep learning and keep reinforcing. One is to be utterly present, really present, that you ignite the thinking of the other person. You're not listening to respond, you're listening to ignite their thinking, that they're bursting with ideas because you're thinking, how far can they go in their thinking before I interrupt and assault their thinking and think for them? And how much further that can they go before I interrupt? And how much further than that? And the quiet one in the room, like this guy, General the Lord Dannett, he was brilliant because he rarely said anything in a meeting. But like you, what he did, he waited to the very end and then he said, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, that was very interesting. I think if I was to summarize what I'm picking up in the mood of the room, it's this, this, and this. And I think the one action we should take is this. And everybody would go, that's brilliant. Yeah. Less is more, isn't it? Less is more. You nailed it, Jonathan. So like sometimes when people are talking and I, and I say, gosh, you know, they talk and they talk and they talk and they talk and then I don't say anything. And I, But I'm looking at them the entire time. I'm completely engaged. Sometimes I'll reach over and I'll touch their hand and I'm like, keep going. You know, you've got this. <laughs> Whatever it is, okay? And at the end, I'm like, thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. And they're like, you're not going to say anything? And I'm like, I'm happy to if you'd like me to respond, but I'm actually listening to understand and hear your perspective and not so much to respond. I mean, if you'd like me to, I'm happy to, to summarize, but you did a beautiful job. And they're in stun mode. They like, uh, was it good? Was it bad? Like, and I'm like, what if it was just nothing? What if it was just information and you sharing kind of where you are and where your headspace is? It freaks people out when you do not respond with action or when you do not respond with understanding or you don't respond with disagreement. They freak out. Yeah, well, one of the things I've learned from you already, and there's this skills oozing out of you, but one of them is your great skill on questions. And really good leaders have the best questions ever. And you know it's a good question because you go, whoa, that's a good question. Let me think about that one. And, and you can see them thinking. And that's the time to leave them the space. Because when they're yeah. quiet, they're thinking. Don't assault them. And they're thinking, let them finish it. And it's that's beautiful. Powerful. I'm going to use that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell everybody to stop assaulting me while I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're assaulting, <laughs> they're assaulting your thinking. Don't, don't do it. Just let me finish. And have equal terms. And this is the other thing. It's equality. Diversity, equality, and inclusion. You know, and, yeah. and it is fascinating with uh, how people bring out the best in others. But if you have a deal, let's let's both, you know, you go for two minutes, Stephanie, then I'll go for two minutes, then you go for two minutes, and we just take it in turns. What's your freshest thinking? What do you want to think about? Off you go. And, you know, I think an important thing about this, Jonathan, before we move on to the next subject, is there's evolving in that. So it's really what's going on for you that day. I mean, leaders are great leaders all the time. They're great leaders all the time, okay? Mm -hmm. But what I might be feeling or expressing on Monday it might be something different than on Thursday. Something might be a priority or I might want to talk about that more or, or something might have happened. I might have had a personal experience that I'm like, Jonathan, I want to shout. I want to talk to you about this. I want to hear your perspective. I had a great conversation with Steve Kuhn yesterday. Mm. And I mean, I got off the phone and I was like, I'm like, there's so much I'm not doing. And then I you know, had a panic attack and quickly jumped on with you. And then I had a further panic attack because there's so much I'm not doing. <laughs> I, I, so I remember you saying inspired. to me. I remember you saying to me. I had this chat, this great chat with this guy in Hungary. I went, "Who's in Hungary?" Of course, it's Stephen. And of course, yeah. Brian J. Esposito is our other superstar friend. Yeah, uh, it's lovely these connections. But uh, you're so right. You know, what can you learn? What can you take from somebody? And, and what are they saying? But what are they not saying? What's in between the lines? It's the unsaid that's the most interesting. It's like Sherlock Holmes and the dog that didn't bark. 
in this murder mystery. Yeah. What was it about the dog that didn't bark? Why didn't it bark? Well, it didn't bark because it knew the murderer. And that was right. how he solved it. And often we go for what is there, but actually it's what's not there when someone's talking exactly. to you and you're really picking up intuitively, somatically in your, in your stomach. I'm feeling, Stephanie, that you're this or you're that. What's going on for you? I'm curious. I wonder. Be a, a sort of... A constant and curious student learning. in yeah. everything you do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. First attempt in learning, fail, isn't it? Yeah. And you know, I, but I think that that's really important, Jonathan, because I really feel like people get so nervous when they don't know, you know, we, we had this, I, I did this workshop a few months ago with a, with a very, very large company. And it was like, what's the right answer? What does that mean? Like, what is the right answer? Ask the question and give your perspective. You know, yes, there are times in life, there's the 20% where it has to be the right answer. It's the test. Okay. But really, isn't it about your experience? Isn't it about how you perceive and how you receive things? Like, People will start answering. I'll ask a question just like you did. What is the experience for you? How are you feeling? Like what's going to, and they look at me and they're like, so I, and they're so tentative and hesitant. And they're like, I've never been asked a question like that before. And I just apologize. I'm like, gosh, I'm, I'm really sorry that somebody hasn't wanted to like really kind of look at you and care about you and figure out who you are and what makes you tick. Cause that's how you get better. Correct. And there's a link onto that, Stephanie, which is assumptions. I, I love the whole area of assumptions what uh, is referred to as untrue limiting assumptions mm -hmm. that you're living as if they are true. So yes. for example, uh, children, yours and mine, they, they might've said, I remember Harry at age seven saying, daddy, I can't do this. And I said, okay, thinking that's an untrue limiting assumption. She's living as if it's true. It's true to her. So I said, okay. And if you could do it, Harry, how would you do it? She go, oh, I did this way, daddy. And she just describes it. How'd you do it? And I went, Ooh, that's interesting. That was a positive alternative assumption. It's still an yeah. assumption, but you asked if you could do it, how would you do it? And I think this is always in it. What, what are we assuming that's stopping us do this, grow the business? What are we assuming that's making us carry on this way when it's unhealthy? What are we tolerating? Right. That's always interesting. What are we prepared to tolerate? Oh, I love that. What are we tolerating? Yes. So as we kind of switch subjects, because I feel like this could be a marathon podcast with you. I just mm -hmm. learned so much and I loved your presence is incredible. You have such a strong interest in the health and wellness space after facing a cancer scare not too long ago. What did this teach you about how you live your own life? Just right now, personally, how you live your own life, and then we're going to move it into business. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I've really had a whole fascination about health, well-being, longevity. I want to have my health span match my lifespan. I don't want to be old, but really unhealthy. And I'm going to the hospital again on Friday, which I hope they can resolve things. But it's uh, having an annual medical check is always worthwhile. But two months ago, my brother David died of cancer and he'd only been diagnosed 10 weeks before that. You know, he seemed fine, he looked fit, he was working, you know, walking 10,000 steps a day, but he actually had been riddled with it for about a year, but we didn't know. And it was all over his body, his brain, his legs, his arms, his gun, oh gosh, his, his back. So it, was, it was very, very tragic. And the family's still coming to terms with it. But with my own cancer scare, which so far I'm okay, and I'm, I'm sort of, as it were, in remission, it just made me realize I'm going to look after, eat, move, sleep, breathe, focus, prosper. This really, I'm in intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, some people call it. I've been doing 250 days so far, and it's a way of life now. Uh, and it, it's really good. I don't start eating till around about 11 o'clock, and my last meal is around 7 in the evening. And I eat what I really, I eat healthily between that time. Um, 
and also sleep, working on sleep and exercise. I'm 60 now, but I train and hit training in the garage, which is gym three times a week. I do yoga three times a week, uh, walk the dog twice a day uh, with my wife, Lee. And so make it very much a life that is about eat, move, sleep and breathe. And, and sleep is a, a key component. I even have power naps for 25 minutes. I did that today before today, always every day, 25 minute power nap. It's perfect. I'm not sure how to take that you needed a nap before you got on a podcast with me. Oh yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the energy that I need to have for keeping up the pace with you, Stephanie. You're the best. So Jonathan, one of the things that I have found in in my own quest for health, because, you know, obviously getting older, having four kids before the pandemic, I was two, 300,000 miles a year globally. I actually got diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder, oh, I'm sorry. which wow. just made me exhausted. Like I, I normally am up at five and I go to bed between, you know, 10 and 11. And I do have, I'm, I don't want to say that it's not balanced. It's balanced. I'm, I'm at sports events. I'm out to a really beautiful dinner with my kids or, you know, I'm doing something fun with my husband. It's not all all work all the time. But I was mentally drained. And I saw a holistic doctor, I saw a functional medicine doctor. And she said to me, she said, Stephanie, how does your health correlate with your success? And that made me stop. I didn't know. And you know me, I, I pride myself on having maybe not the right answer, but I pride myself on having a a thoughtful answer and a respectful answer. And I had no answer. I was like, oh, so it took me a year, but I want to ask you, how does your health correlate with your success and your leadership? Yeah, um, very much so. So I think at the beginning of the pandemic, I had a very tough time going on. And also I saw income drop an awful lot, but yet I had a lot of obligations and I got quite depressed, clinically quite yeah. depressed and feeling really low. And my way around it, I, I began with some cognitive-based therapy, which was very helpful. There was some stuff that I needed to address from my past, and that was really helpful. But then uh, I used Atomic Habits, James Clear. I don't know whether you read his book, but this habits, habit stacking. So I, I wake up, read the Daily Stoic, Ryan Holiday, listen to it, sorry, audio. Then I will do my daily five-minute journal.com, so I journal, gratitude journal. Then I'll either do uh, 20 minutes of mindfulness, and then I'll do HIIT training or I'll do yoga and then I'll walk the dog. So my day doesn't start till 10, but I've already mm. stacked in there huge mental health well-being, which for the last 20 months has made all the difference. And I'm going to keep it going. That's the way I'm going to do. Well, I think, you know what? So just to jump on to that, I think you just made a ton of deposits. And so by the end of the day, you're not depleted. Your withdrawals are not, you know, you're not empty because you've stacked so, so well. Do you know who Mark Champagne is? No, I don't. So Mark Champagne is a dear, dear friend. He actually just published a book yesterday. It came out yesterday oh. and it's called Personal Socrates. Okay. I will and read that. it's these incredible questions that are just and he, he basically profiles it. And I don't have the book in front of me or I would be happy to show you. But he's taken all of these successful people, successful in their own right, and basically done profiles on them. And it's almost like a daily wellness, but it's asking these very deep questions for reflection on yourself and your own life for change. And so when you were talking about the habit stacking, that kind of is what triggered my mind because a lot of times with maybe calm or like headspace, people don't know where to start and they always feel like they're doing it wrong. Yeah. And the other thing that you just brought up, which I want to talk about a little bit, is that you are such a profound leader, but you too experience depression and sadness and being down. I think a lot of the times people don't understand that as leaders, 
we too have downtime. So one of the big things that I've been talking about a lot is that I went to therapy for a very long time when all the stuff happened with my mom and my father passed at a young age like yours. I had a lot of things that I hadn't worked out, okay? And then I took it as seven years of therapy. I did that. Great. I'm done. And it wasn't done. But I thought in my heart, in my head, I was like, well, I, I couldn't process that any any differently. Like I, I did it. I did the work. I, I spent days in bed. I would cry. I would write. I would journal. I would see another therapist. I would do CBT. I would do DBT. I would do talk therapy. I, whatever it was, I did it. I really did it. Got married, had kids. Something came up. And I was like, no, no, no. It didn't. It's, I did that already. We've covered that. When I was talking to the therapist, and it's something that you brought up, we all feel trauma in different ways at different times of our lives. So we are only able to deal with the perspective that we have at that time and that age. As we grow older and we have different experiences or we become parents or we have tragedy of loss or everything else that we haven't experienced at that age that we mm. dealt with it, mm. we need to revisit it. Yeah. Um, and I love the fact that you said that. And I want you to talk more about what that was for you. Yeah. Well, it's, imagine your head is like a, a block of flats. And a lot of the time you let people occupy rooms in your head rent free. You go like, yeah. no, get out of there. So my stuff was all to do with my ex-wife and stuff that was going on, which is not fair to describe it. It would be hurtful to of her. Of course, of course. But it, it was toxic for me. And I had to get out of that that marriage. But the stuff was still in there that I was playing over. And so getting sorting through that was very healthy for me. And, and I do feel that, as you say, at different stages of your life, things happen to you, certain triggers happen. It's not the fact you have a problem, it's how you handle it that marks out the average from the exceptional. And so I think facing into a problem, what have I learned? What am I going to do differently? And also, I have found the whole Stoic philosophy to be really helpful during that time. And I don't watch or listen to the news first thing in the morning because that's filling my head full of crap. I actually yeah. listened to what Marcus Aurelius did 2,000 years ago and the fact, control the controllables. What can I control? I can control these things. Those things are way out of my control. Like my wife set up a charity for vulnerable girls who've gone through abuse, slavery, trafficking, uh, and mental health issues. And I think we shared before, but this is Lee's book, Inspiring Women Leaders. And she really inspires me. But she found that she wanted, through what she'd been through in the abusive relationship she'd been in, she wanted to help other people. So I think things happened to us for a reason. I went through a difficult time in order that I could help Lee with this charity for other people who've not been fortunate and had a tough time. But I think as a leader, we don't have to experience everything that everybody else has experienced, but I am a great believer in, you've got to lead by example. If I say to any mm -hmm. of my CEOs or chairman or partners that I'm coaching, you need to really get your health sorted out. Well, am I doing that? I remember that lovely one about Gandhi and a little boy was brought along by his mother to Gandhi and said, Gandhi, you know, she'd queued for about a day to get to the front of the queue and see Gandhi. And she, she brought this little boy along and he was a plump little lad. And she said, He's fat. Tell him to stop eating sugar. And Gandhi looked at the little boy and he said, what's your name? He said, Ibrahim, sir. Okay, Ibrahim. Would you come back and see me in two weeks' time? And she said, what? Is that, is that it? Yeah, come and see me in two weeks' time. So she left. It's a true story. Two weeks later, she took the train most of the day, queued for in the sun for all the day. Ibrahim and she came to the front and, and she said, you are, and she said, no, I didn't remember. It's Ibrahim, isn't it? He goes, yes, sir. And he goes, Ibrahim, stop eating sugar. And the mother went, yeah, and? I said, that's it, stop eating sugar. She said, well, why didn't you tell him that two weeks ago? 
He said, two weeks ago, I was eating too much sugar. And, and that's my philosophy, that if I want people to be better leaders or look off the health and mental well-being or habit stack or whatever, I'm going to go and try it out myself. And all of these things, a bit like you, you've tried all sorts of things. And I'm constantly learning. I'm always work in progress. I'm never the finished article. I'll still be on my deathbed whenever it might be. And judging by David dying at 63, it may not be that far off. Who knows? Stop it. We're having nothing to do with that. That is not happening. We still have so much to give. When it's my time, I'm going to make sure it's a good death as it's been a good life. And I'm going to go out with a screech of brakes and a smell of burning rubber going, wow, what a ride, you know, having had a good time. That's amazing. So you said something recently on a podcast that really stood out to me. And I didn't really realize that it stood out to me until days and days later when I was thinking about it. And I kept thinking about it over and over again. And you said that you wanted to steer away from being competitive and comparative. Yeah. What are the consequences of always trying to compare yourself to others? Yeah, it is, it's a really good one. Um, it, well, the reason we did this is we did lots of psychometrics with our clients, designed our own one, the Inspiring Leadership Inventory, as part of the other book, which is I, I wrote. Can you imagine? That's me. Look at me. That's me as a young army officer, and that's me with the, uh, the old general. A bit dodgy. But, uh, I think it's amazing. <laughs> a lot of, lot of fun. We, we designed this psychometric about measuring inspiring leaders, 360, which is quite interesting. But one of the tools that we use it talks about two elements and Lee, my wife and I both did it. And we had a friend of ours who's a psychometrician who compared it. He said, well, look, Lee, you're comparative. Jonathan, you're comparative and competitive. I said, oh no, I'm complete face plant. <laughs> oh no, I'm completely stuffed. And Lee goes, he is, he is. And I go, yeah, I know I am. And, and so it's hilarious. So for example, Lee trains in the gym with a personal trainer and I used to train with her, but of course she'd compare herself to me. And we're both, about, and yeah. I'd be competitive. So she is amazing. She can lift in squats more than my body weight. I mean, she's only, she's the same height as you. And she's wow. phenomenally strong and slim, slim woman, but just phenomenally strong. She has that real ability and determination to it. And of course she did that and I went, well, I'm gonna have to do this too. And so I was, she said, stop, because if you are competitive, the fact you're competing with it, I, I, I just go, no, I'm not going to do it because he's always trying to be better yeah. than me at water skiing or skiing or running or whatever. Whatever I do, I try and be the best at it, which is very hard being the partner of someone who's like that. So she compares to me and then I'm competing to try and improve. So actually what we do is she trains with a personal trainer and then I train separately, either on my own or with my personal trainer. And that way it's really relaxed and it's very easy. So we can both be high achievers, but you've got to watch this habit of coming on to one of these like reality TV shows or dancing shows or whatever it is. And you wait for everybody else to score you. And you go, what Mm -hmm. what score do I get? What score do I get? Oh, okay, I'm I'm a four out of 10. Oh no, I'm not good. You had to come on and go, how did I do? What what do I think? How did I really think? I think that was a a seven out of 10. There's some areas I can improve. No, okay, if people give me 360, it's really important to learn 360. And that's healthy to accept it. But when it's thrown at you, like imagine it's like a basketball, they throw it at you. Don't let it wind you and hit you in the stomach. Oh, that was really bad. Just catch it and go, thanks for the feedback. Let me think about mm-hmm. that. And if it's, if it's good, you can bounce it and go, yeah, I'll take that one in. And if it's not what you want, you go, put it in a basket and don't deal with it. But we need to be aware of 360 and feedback from other people and their perception, but not live by it. And this is where social media is causing so much problem for our children. <sighs> 
and particularly girls at university and college and things like that. Uh, someone was talking about their daughter being bullied by other girls and how she appeared and on Instagram and had she adjusted her face on some paint thing to make her look perfect. I think we just, we've gone too far with the comparative and I'm happy when I'm like somebody else or I'm happy if I can be like one of these Kardashians or whatever it is. That's mm -hmm. not the way we should be doing. Be happy now with who you're, you're already enough. Inside yourself. And I think that that's the thing that I wanna go back to because you make a great point about competitive and comparative. Like when you're talking about that, I'm actually thinking about myself and my husband. I'm thinking about how the kids interact. I'm thinking about my clients. I'm thinking about, you know, I generally coach the C-suite or the board or the VCs, but lately I have been coaching to the SVPs and the EVPs as well. So just that connection, that barrier point, how do you actually communicate? How do you have self-awareness and self-actualize? So being comparative and competitive is so important. But I want to go back for a second because you have children. I have children. How do you do that, Jonathan, with the society that we live in? So I'll give you some examples. My youngest is 11. He knows where he ranks on every sports team. He'll say, he'll say words like top 5%, lowest 20%. Then we go into the PSATs. So that's kind of the exam right before the SATs. How did I score? Where do I fare? These are the schools that fit your score. Okay. When I look at the SATs and they go, this is a reach school for you. So your score is right there. But you know what? There's kids with 4.2s and 4.6s that had way more clubs and way more extracurricular than you did. So we're teaching them from middle school on that this is the box that they fit on based on a score, based on what they're reading, based on how they show up in, in, in sports. And nothing really, the most important thing for me on this, Jonathan, because we're going to flip over to your leadership, the most important thing for me in this is I have two boys and two girls. And this has happened. The oldest is 26. The youngest is 11. She has come back and said, I've got a 90%. Here's what I've got on economics. Um, that's definitely not going to get me into this school. That's not even the lowest tier of this school. And so I say, oh, gosh, how do you know? Where did you get that information? Where did you get that data? And then she shows me the data that the school puts out or that a re Princeton Review puts out. So here's my question to you. My question is, if this is being constantly shoved down their throat and this is the world that they're living in, we are constantly putting them in the box. If you're going to do that, you need to develop these children into adults and all we talk about is grades and GPA and averages, but we don't talk about developing them emotionally, developing them intelligently, develop, developing them into critical thinkers. What are some tips right now that you can tell our listeners mm. in some of the development tools that you can use for these kids that are kind of coming up? Yeah, it's a really worrying trend that we have. One is the digitization, which has many benefits. But there is always this, you're now aware of a much larger group around the world and where you fit in it. I mean, you and I were laughing that we're in the, both in the top 1% of global podcasts. And as long as we can come back and be okay with who we are. So don't give away your self-worth and your self-value to other people. I'm not good enough because I'm not this. Or like that woman who told me I was thick, I was going to be a dustman, which really was devastating. Oh, this is where we need to get people out into, like my mother sent me away to Outward Bound when I was about 12. It was one of the things that built my confidence up because I met people from a whole variety of backgrounds. We did running around a lock. We swam in the lock in the morning. It was freezing. We went climbing and scrambling and canoeing. It gave me so much confidence. There was no digital technology. Nope. It just gave me belief in what I could do. 
And what I think really helps is give your child as much as it can of different experiences. Try a bit of sailing, try a bit of this. Things that will test them and stretch them to find what they are suited to. Just as like my mother believed in me that, okay, you're not good at maths and you can't spell so well as others can, but what you can do is this. So find your sweet spot, find your spikiness, the things that you are good at and make them okay with who they are. And so we don't want to be almost like soccer mums where we can't say, oh, you're the best. You came last no. in the run, but here's a, here's a medal for you for coming last. Yeah, not sure about that so much. Be okay with failure and don't see it as failure, but see it as learning. So what do you learn and what do you can do next time? Okay, well, that's fine. And so I think it, it, it's what I learn, what am I gonna do differently? Learning and action I think is, is always their teachable moments. Everything that happens to our children, it's a moment to teach them a value that you have, a way of being in the world, how you show up, how you treat other people. And it's not always about you, it's always about other people too. You know, Jonathan, you're the third person in the last few months who have brought up um, Outward Bound. Do you know Claude Silver? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So Claude Silver is the chief heart officer for Vayner Media. She's one of my most favorite humans in the entire world. Just the most kind, loving, engaged person ever. And just really just so empathetic and compassionate. Her sole job at VaynerMedia is just keeping a pulse on how people are interacting and, and how people, how happy they are showing up and, and what it looks like. And she was a huge part of Outward Bound sent by her parents and had the exact same experience. Mm. Second to that, Naveen Jain. Do you know who Naveen is? No. Naveen is, is the um, founder of Viome. And he actually just got done talking to me about, he's got very, he's got amazing children, three very successful children. And when I say success, I'm not, they are successful in their own right. And they, they do amazing things and they, women's health and apps and a, just a bunch of stuff. But he said to me that his daughter came home at a very young age, under 16, and said, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And he said, no, sweetie. We're not going to make that decision yet because you haven't been able to experience enough things. And I want you to do all of these different things before you kind of stick your stake in the ground. And, you know, he said, you know, I got an eye roll. I got a whatever dad. I got all of these different things. But ultimately, after he was strongly encouraging her to do all of these different things, Jonathan, she came back with a very different feeling. And, a, and that to me is everything. They can be mad at you and they can be frustrated but it's okay to say no and move them in a different direction. Yeah, uh, and the problem is, and I'm gonna to have to head off shortly because um, I've got a, another friend in Seattle I'm about to talk to in yeah. a minute. But I think parents often create psychological problems for their children. They try and have the unmet needs of the parents, they live it through the child. So I didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. Now my daughter, Brani did, I let her choose it, but I was really thrilled she did. And my other daughter, Harriet, went to Bristol, which is, an, again, another great university. But you've just got to be careful that we don't try and live our lives through them. And But as you say, give them all these different experiences and find out what resonates for them. And, and maybe some of the psychometrics are quite useful when they get into their 20s about the kind of things they like compared to others. So, Jonathan, my last question for you, because I know we're running out of time and I want to be really respectful, but I want to talk about what an incredible, amazing podcast that you have. Oh, I want people to go and I want people to listen. Tell me what your purpose is for your podcast and what it's called and where people can find you and your amazing leadership tools. Oh, bless you. Well, firstly, the, the first place to go to is my website, jonathanperks.com. And on there, you can see all 185 episodes now and the top tips and book reviews and materials around our inspiring leadership 
work that we do and the coaching and the teamwork we do with people. So please go to jonathanperks.com. And then, as I say, they're, they're on Apple and they're on Spotify. It's called Inspiring Leadership with Jonathan Bowman Perks. And you're going to be on it soon. So I'm looking forward to having you as a, a guest on my on my podcast too. But thank you so much for having me on your show. It's, I've just been so buzzed ever since we started. Thank chatting. you so, so much. And you know what? I'm so sorry we ran out of time because I only had seven more pages of questions for you. So we're <laughs> going to have to do this again super soon. We will. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit that subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. Also, head over to YouTube to check out all of the live videos on our new podcast channel, Spin It with Stephanie Malik. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.